Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa baby, a 54 convertible to light blue. I'll wait up for you, dear Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Think of all the fun I've missed. Think of all the fellas that I haven't kissed. Next year I could be just as good if you check off my Christmas list. Santa baby, I want a yacht and really that's not a lot. Been an angel all year, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa honey, one little thing, I really need the deed to a platinum mine, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa cutie, and fill my stocking with a duplex and checks. Sign your X on the line, Santa cutie, and hurry down the chimney tonight. Come and trim my Christmas tree with some decorations bought at Tiffany. I really do believe in you. Believe in me, Santa baby, forgot to mention one little thing, a ring. I don't mean on the phone, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Hurry down the chimney tonight. Tonight?
Maybe we'll get it on the first pass. Maybe if you're lucky. <laughs> You'd be so lucky. We'd be so lucky.
Okay, in case you haven't gathered it, um, this is The B, and you're tuned to Mutiny Radio. And it's uh, Saturday at 10 o'clock. That means it's labor, and it's love, and it's radio coming at you from 2781 21st Street. Coming into your consciousness, labor and love, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is where you work, then you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's just a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Okay, we started out with some Christmas stuff. Okay, we we had that all-time classic, Ms. Eartha Kitt with her all-time classic, Santa Baby. And then we changed to uh, Emmy Lou Harris, Light in the Stable. And last year we had Alison Krauss with Yo-Yo Ma and the Wexford Carol. Well, I want to wish you all a happy Christmas season, a happy holiday season. And I know it's tough out there. It's getting tougher, too, as more and more of our people succumb to the virus and more and more, uh, like they say, empty chairs around the Christmas table or the Kwanzaa table or the Hanukkah table or the Dalawi table. This is the time when we all get together. We all get together in the winter to celebrate that we're still here and we're still going on no matter how cold it gets and how hard it gets. We're still there together. Well, the COVID has stolen that from us. The COVID means we have to learn new ways to get together, not to lose hope, Don't lose hope. Uh, Okay, well, let's see what we've got for you today. Yo-Yo Ma and Alison Krauss. That was a beauty, huh? Almost an accident. We're going to play a little Elvis later, and we've got a few Christmas songs for you to listen to. We've got Radio Labor, we've got the Labor Beat, we've got Labor Notes, and we got Labor History in two. Here we go. Let's start with Labor and Love. Okay. Oh, 
Who was Ben Fletcher? The great black radical you never heard of. Ben Fletcher. The great black radical you've never heard of. Militant labor organizer Ben Fletcher in his own words. Now, if I was going to do the labor cards over again, I would include Mr. Ben Fletcher. And here's the article about it. In the early 20th century, when many U.S. unions disgracefully excluded Asian, Black, and Latinx workers, the industrial workers of the world warmly welcomed people of color. This revolutionary union, whose members affectionately are known as Wobblies, emphasizes class struggle solidarity in its legendary motto, an injury to one is an injury to all. Ben Fletcher, an African-American who helped lead the IWW's most militant and effective interracial branch, epitomized the union's brand of anti-capitalism and anti-racism. Fletcher, who lived from 1890 to 1949, a brilliant union organizer and a humorous orator, Fletcher helped found and lead local aid of the IWW's Marine Transport Workers Industrial Union. When founded in 1913, this union was a third African-American, a third Irish, an Irish-American, and a third other European immigrants. Parenthetical comment. We're, very, we're only strong when we're united. Despite being hated by bosses and red-baited by the government, Local 8 controlled the waterfront for almost a decade. Now a new book, Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly, tells the story of one of the greatest heroes of the American working class. So, Ben Fletcher. Ben Fletcher, here's an article that, about him. Ben Fletcher, longtime IWW organizer, drew a deep puff of his cigarette and looked placidly out the window as he concluded the reminiscences of his radical activities, which led to his imprisonment in 1918 with a hundred other members of the IWW in the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth on indictments returned against them by a government possessed of a wartime hysteria. Simple tale he told. He had been smuggled out of Norfolk by friends after the shipping interests had threatened him with lynching. He had to force himself into the federal courtroom in Chicago, where for 19 weeks he and 112 other leaders of the syndicalist movement stood trial on charge of espionage and obstructing the government's war program. And finally, of the two years and six months of the 10-year sentence, he served in the federal penitentiary. 
I was preparing the longshoremen of Baltimore for a strike in 1917 for higher wages, shorter hours, and better working conditions when I received instructions from headquarters to proceed to Norfolk, where the dock workers were becoming restless and asking that an organizer be sent them. I found the men responsive and eager for a union, but I had not been in town long before the word was circulated that I represented a dangerous element set on the destruction of property and the overthrow of the government. Anyway, Ben Fletcher, let's see if we can find something in Ben Fletcher's voice. Images, how about a video, huh? Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly. Hi, my name is Peter Cole. I'm a history professor and an author, and I'm here to talk to you about a new book that is called Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of the Black Wobbly, that PM Press will be publishing soon. I'm here to talk to you about the fact that uh, we're initiating a Kickstarter campaign in order to help fund this book so that more, more copies can be published. Who is Ben Fletcher? Ben Fletcher was an African American in the early 20th century and a member and leader of the industrial workers of the world. They were called the Wobblies. Um, the Wobblies were radical. They were so radical that Fletcher, who was a socialist as well as a radical unionist, um, led one of the most integrated unions in American history. Um, one third of the dock workers on the Philadelphia waterfront were African American, one third were Irish and Irish American, and one third were European immigrants. Usually that meant that those workers weren't going to get along and the bosses were going to use diversity in order to sort of destroy their workers' power. But the Wobblies were racist in a time that very few were, right? And so Ben Fletcher, um, as the leader of that group of Philadelphia dock workers, became one of the most powerful um, union leaders in the country and among the most important African-American labor leaders, honestly, in the history of America. Um, however, he was arrested, as were many of the leading Wobblies in the early 20th century, and uh, went to prison, right? Um, I wrote a book about Ben Fletcher called Ben Fletcher. Um, it was published by Charles H. Kerr Press. 15 years ago. Um, I also wrote another book called Wobblies on the Waterfront that was about the union he helped lead. Um, those books are still around, but um, in the time since then, I found a lot more documents. Um, I've rethought Ben Fletcher in some serious ways, um, and I'm so happy that PM Press is interested in publishing really an edition that is twice as long as the first one with an amazing forward by Robin Kelly. Um, and so I'm asking you to support our Kickstarter campaign in order to make sure that more people are able to see this book um, than ever before. Um, 2020 is an interesting time, right? Uh, racial capitalism wasn't a term used much um, in the uh, 1990s when I started working on this, but it is now. There's a lot of us interested in radical unions, anti-racism, socialism and internationalism, and if you're interested in those topics, 
you might be interested in picking up PM Press's copy of Ben Fletcher. Thank you very much. Okay, that was uh, the author, Peter Cole, who wrote a book about Ben Fletcher. And uh, Raiji, uh, contact PM Press and uh, get yourself a copy. Find out about Ben Fletcher and who he was and, and what he did. Now, I want to say his, he's the father of Bill Fletcher. <coughs> Bill Fletcher, who is Bill Fletcher Jr. <coughs> at any rate, Ben Fletcher. So look at some labor notes. It's been a long nightmare before Christmas for UPS and postal workers. Now, we remember that Mr. Trump um, appointed a man at the Postal Service who's perceived function was to slow down the mail delivery, to slow down the processing of mail-in ballots. But uh, there was such an uproar that he couldn't do it. So let's see what this article says. It's been a long nightmare before Christmas for UPS and postal workers. Every year, workers at the Postal Service and UPS expect to work long hours between Thanksgiving and Christmas. This is like our Super Bowl, says Kimberly Caroy president of the Iowa Postal Workers, APWU, employees really do rally together. But this year has been like no other. Workers were still catching their breath from last year's holiday peak when the pandemic struck and online ordering ratcheted up. It was like Christmas all over again and it never stopped. Package volumes at the Postal Service are up 40%. Of course they are. People can't go out. <laughs> People can't go out and shop, and they can't take a bag of gifts over to their family or friends. The plant's so backed up that they're sorting raw, unsorted mail, whole trays to carriers to manually sort and case ourselves. Everyone's spending an hour a day just casing up mail that's supposed to be run through a machine because there's no one to run the machine. That's on top of having 400 packages to deliver your route. Some processing plants are so overwhelmed that 100 or more trucks full of mail are waiting outside, snarling traffic. A driver in Cleveland told local news that he had slept in his truck for two nights while waiting to unload. Inside the plants, packages are piled on every available surface. There's not a lot of space to even walk through the building. There's less space to social distance. At UPS, too. 
Parcel volumes are hitting record highs. Unlike the Postal Service, the company is making money hand over fist. Fundamental to the Postal Service is its commitment to accept all mail. UPS, on the other hand, gets to choose what it can deliver profitably and skip what it can't. At the start of December, it announced it would stop picking up parcels from six major realtors retailers. Postal Service absorbs packages that UPS and FedEx won't take. Its share of the e-commerce deliveries doubled from October to November. So all that work is being thrown over to the Postal Service. While some UPS workers are getting too many hours, Others are getting too few as the company finds ways to force more work onto lower paid tiers. One of these tiers is Article 22.4 drivers, paid six bucks an hour less than regular drivers. Package delivery is the better paying Teepster job at UPS. The warehouse workers who load and sort Mostly part-timers making less than half as much. Anyway, that's on labor notes, the travails of the post office. How postal workers saved the election. More than 65 million people voted by mail this fall, a record. And the Postal Service has been working at reduced numbers for months. As of August, 40,000 postal employees had been formed to quarantine. Roscoe Woods, president of the 481 area local of the postal workers, APWU near Detroit, said the workforce he represents is down 30%. How did they pull off this gargantuan feat? Most of our employees are very prideful, said Keith Combs, president of the APWU Detroit local. They were really happy they were able to compete and complete the, ver the mission with the ballots. I want the post office to be seen in a different light than the White House had been portraying it. All year long, postal workers have been under attack by the Postmaster General, a Trump fundraiser, an expert job killer from private logistics. Hundreds of mail sorting machines were dismantled. Overtime was denied. Letter carriers were directed not to sort all their mail when received, but leave it behind for the next day. It was only an outcry from postal workers and the public that forced DeJoy to say on August 18th that he would postpone his service cuts till after the election. But he made clear he was only hitting pause. Louis DeJoy, the travails of the post office. Okay.
And we read this one before. I think General Motors returns to Oshawa, but offers only second-tier jobs in a pop-up plant. Uh, there's a lot of noise made about how they were reopening the plant that was closed last year. But what's missing from the news coverage is the reality that GM is not really reopening the old plant. Instead, the new operation will be a pop-up assembly plant designed to meet short-term need for additional production of hugely profitable pickup trucks. The company is making no long-term commitments to the workers it will hire nor to the community where its pickups and profits will be made. In effect, GM will open a brand new plant inside the shell of the old plant with an almost entirely new workforce, an inferior wage scale, fewer benefits, and no job security. Okay. So they give it to you with one hand, and the other hand they take it away. General Motors. Okay, get on some radio labor. This is our world labor report. Probably getting tired of hearing me talk, but let's listen to radio labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, December 18th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, the plight of workers in Palestine during the pandemic. The effect of COVID in Southern Africa. The Labour Start report about union events and singing a nurse's lullaby. This is Radio Labor. Conditions for workers in Palestine have become even worse with a collapse of the economy and the spread of COVID-19. To bring more public awareness to the problems faced by Palestinians, the British Union, Unison, conducted a global webinar. Unison is the UK's largest union with more than 1.3 million members. One of the participants in the webinar was Ria Alsana. Ms. Alsana is a research coordinator with the Who Profits Center, which focuses on corporate involvement in the occupation of Palestinian land. She was asked about the state of the Palestinian economy. The Palestinian economy has collapsed. There are no, at the moment, job-generating sectors in the Palestinian economy. The most of people work in the service sector. And so if you look at the agricultural sector, for example, in the 1970s, 40% of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza were employed in agriculture. Today, we're talking only about 6.1% of Palestinians. And so the ability for people to find employment and for the ability for the Palestinian territory to create jobs has been completely decimated by Israel's prolonged military occupation and colonial rule. 
The OPT suffers from some of the highest levels of unemployment in the world, over 25% pre-COVID. And in the West Bank, unemployment is less than, than in Gaza, but this change or difference between Gaza and the West Bank is predominantly down to the absorption of Palestinian labor in the Israeli job market. As we know, since 2006 and the imposition of the blockade on Gaza, sea, water, air, a land blockade, no workers have been able to kind of exit Gaza for work. I mean, people can barely exit Gaza for any, for any purpose, but certainly not for work. And mostly it's been concentrated on workers from the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So we're talking about over 133,000 Palestinians coming to work for Israeli businesses in the West Bank, in the settlements, but also in Israel. These workers amount to around 18.5% of the West Bank's labor force. So they are a significant section of Palestinian workers. When we're talking about Palestinian workers, 18.5% of them don't actually work for Palestinian businesses or businesses centered or positioned in the West Bank or East Jerusalem. They're working for Israeli businesses in the settlements and in Israel proper. And of course, the entry or access of these workers to those jobs is not an easy process and it's definitely not a simple process either. For a Palestinian to access these jobs, they have to have a permit. Permits are essentially a security process. You have to have a give all of your biometric data to the Israeli military. You have to go through a checking by the Israeli military. If you're an ex-prisoner, you cannot get your permit. We know that a huge amount of Palestinians are imprisoned arbitrarily and so on. Permits also can't really engage in any job that you want to engage in, right? It's not like if you're a doctor, you can go into Israel and become a doctor in Israel if you get a permit. Israel only allows the entry of Palestinian workers for specific sectors where it has a lack of workers. And it's mainly manual work. So they're doing manual work and they're doing dangerous work. And the majority of them are employed in the construction sector, they're employed in agriculture, and they're employed in also factories, so manufacturing and so on. These workers, you know, you get your permit. It's not an easy ride. Every day you have to cross highly securitized checkpoints twice a day, going to work and back from work. This means that you have to leave your home at early hours in the morning, get back to your family at the late hours of night, and then start all over again the next day. And at the moment when we, you know, we're talking about COVID and people are talking about social distancing and being safe and hygiene and all of these um, kind of recommendations of how we can keep ourselves safe, they're not really tenable for Palestinians. I mean, if you looked at pictures from the checkpoints at three o'clock in the morning, you see thousands and thousands of workers queuing in to act, to go through the checkpoints to access their jobs with no sense of protection. The pandemic is having devastating effects on workers in developing regions such as Southern Africa. Seamarie Ainsborough has a report. As the world's attention is grabbed by the incompetent management of the pandemic in Britain and the United States, it is easy to forget that other parts of the world, especially in developing countries, are suffering as well. For example, in Southern Africa, where there are many informal workers with no benefits, the pandemic has hit hard. In a webinar conducted by the Regional Organization of the International Trade Union Confederation, ITUC Africa, the situation was outlined by Zingizwa Losi. Ms. Losi is the president of the Southern Africa Coordination Council, SATUC. She is also the president of the Congress of South African Trade Unions, COSATU. 
On behalf of Satu, I want to greet everyone and also say that as we stand today, the globe is still facing a huge health and economic challenge because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which now records over 21 million confirmed cases and over 1 million deaths. It is evident that COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the supply, which is production of goods and services, as well as the demand, which is consumption and investments. All business, regardless of the size, in the Sardeg region and beyond, are still facing serious challenges, especially those in the aviation, in tourism, hospitality industries, with a real threat of significant declines in revenue, insolvency, and massive job losses. For instance, following travel bans, border closures, and quarantine measures that we have witnessed being implemented in the Sardeg region, many workers have not been able to move to their places of work or carry out with their jobs which has had a knock-on effect on income, particularly for informal and casual employed workers. Now, given the current environment of uncertainty and fear, enterprises are likely to delay investments, purchases of goods, and the hiring of workers. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of their work. Our top stories section included links to coverage of what is hoped to be the end of a giant corruption scandal within the American United Auto Workers Union stories from a number of countries regarding vaccination priorities for workers, and more attacks and threats of attacks directed at Colombian trade union leaders. The emerging trends in our news coverage include the ways in which the pandemic has intensified existing contradictions and conflicts. While it's been obvious for months that the provision of health care is biased by income both between and within countries, a recent development has been the violent suppression of pandemic-related dissent. From Albania to Zimbabwe, the stresses that the pandemic have placed on workers has in turn generated large-scale protests. Typically, workers are demanding employment, state income supports, and improved access to health care. But this week alone, we counted over 20 such demonstrations that were crushed by police and the militaries of dozens of countries. For journalists reporting on these events, work has become doubly dangerous. Now, not only do they risk exposure to COVID-19, but as the International Federation of Journalists reports almost daily, they face police violence as well. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of the working conditions that have caused a walkout by home care workers in New Zealand, the spread of period poverty campaigns across the United Kingdom, and why so many of the agricultural workers engaged in large-scale protests in India are women. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories about the overstressed South African healthcare system, personal protective equipment shortages yet again in Canada, and the campaign to have COVID-19 declared a workplace hazard in Mexico. 
Our current photo of the week is of Portuguese hospitality workers demanding work or government assistance. Hospitality, transport, and tourism workers have been hard hit by the pandemic, and protests like this one have been reported almost daily somewhere around the world. Current campaigns that we're running at the request of unions around the world include urgent appeals for online solidarity with workers and their unions in Kyrgyzstan, Brazil, Colombia, Myanmar, Belarus, India, Ukraine, and in Albania. Look for details on how you can participate in these campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Picture this. You're in the hospital with COVID-19. Your family is not allowed to visit, and you are not sure you will live through the night. There's only you and a night shift nurse. Here from the Labor CD Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers, is A Nurse's Lullaby. Nurse's Lullaby was written by Timothy Sheard and sung by Tracy Garrison Feinberg and Jacob Gold. You can find a link to the CD Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers, on the Radio Labor website. And that's it, international labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. This is the last Radio Labor newscast for 2020, and we're glad to see the end of the year. More than a million and a half deaths due to COVID-19. The final days of a fascist president in the White House. 
a libertarian takeover of the British government with a breakaway from the European Union, millions of workers around the world unemployed because of the pandemic. It's been a crazy, suffering year. All of us at Radio Labor wish you, your family, your friends, and co-workers a happy 2021. We will be back with our 11th year on Friday, January 8, 2021. Until then, remember, it's all about global solidarity. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong.
If we make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow If we make it through December Got plans to be in a warmer town come summertime Maybe even California If we make it through December we'll be fine Got laid off down at the factory And their timing's not the greatest in the world Heaven knows I've been working hard Wanted Christmas to be right for daddy's girl I don't mean to hate December It's meant to be the happy time of year My little girl don't understand Why daddy can't afford no Christmas here If we make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow If we make it through December Got plans to be in a warmer town come summertime Maybe even California If we make it through December we'll be fine
Okay, that was a Christmas, that was our Christmas set, one of them. Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, Hank Ballard, who the true originator of the twist. Dubby Checker got all the money. Then Santa Claus is coming to town. And then Merle Haggard, sort of a change in tempo. Change in mood. This is what hundreds of thousands of working people are facing this Christmas. If we make it through December, then we'll be all right. He just lost his job. His little girl's wondering why there's no Christmas cheer this year. Um... Congress is still playing with itself. And I include the Democrats in there too, Pelosi and all of them. They're uh, media stars and uh, elitists first. And then they get around thinking about us. Well, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is losing her home or Mitch McConnell. Is Mitch McConnell strapped for money? How about Chuck Schumer? And Cotton from Alabama, Mississippi, Tom Cotton. Mr. Trump has a place to stay. Mr. Trump has a job. Mr. Trump has money. Now, why is that? Why do they all have money? Why do they all have everything all set? It's the C word called capitalism. And the sooner we wake up to the fact that it's a rigged game designed to make some people rich and a very, very many people poor and broke, the sooner we'll get on with our business. Okay. 
Enough preaching. Santa Claus is coming to town with Hank Ballard of the Midnighters. Merle Haggard, Mary, uh, if we make it through December, then we'll be all right with Merle Haggard. The more I hear of Merle Haggard, the more I, uh, I like. And uh, Elvis, with a um, sort of not, not very well-known Christmas song, but very touching. Okay, let's listen to Fiorona. Here we go. American individual. origin myth next to a totally of age Pocahontas, definitely consenting to be a colonist child bride. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode of News Broke, we're looking at how some Americans' obsession with individual freedom over the well-being of the entire country has meant we lead the world in COVID cases, and why individual freedom is, in fact, a myth. So where does it come from? Who gains by continuing to peddle it? And what the hell is a bootstrap? News Broke is back, again. And last year, we talked about American exceptionalism, that stubborn belief that the United States is number one. But boy, did we really outdo ourselves with the coronavirus. Just take a look at this animated bar chart of what has happened since we aired our last episode. Stop, stop! Why is the music to the final scene of every athlete's biopic playing? We don't want to win this race! Turn around! A lot has been said about how other countries have managed to stop the spread of COVID by prioritizing mass testing, isolation and quarantine, contact tracing, having competent leadership, and I don't know, listening to scientists. Things that the U.S. has failed to do, to the point where other countries are banning us from visiting. Which is ironic, because travel bans are kind of our thing. But there's something deeper going on in this country, what international observers might call a cultural problem. That is the belief that following even the most basic health protocols is somehow infringing on Americans' individual freedom. We've seen it with the endless smartphone footage of defiant maskless shoppers, which proved Hot Girl Summer was officially replaced by Crazy Karen Midsommar. But we've also heard it from Republican politicians, Fox News, and the president. Will you consider a national mandate that people need to wear masks? No, I want people to have a certain freedom. I'm very reluctant to mandate uh, wearing a mask. We just believe in freedoms in Oklahoma. Lockdowns and other emergency powers are going to be used whenever government needs to get you to bend and otherwise relinquish your rights for the greater good. Yeah, it's not about your rights. You don't have any rights anymore. You have to wear a mask when you're alone in the woods, walking with no one near you in the park while running, riding your bike. Is there any science behind this whatsoever? Yes, there's science behind it, you professionally disingenuous buffoon. 
But Tucker Carlson alone in the woods does beg the question. If a tree falls on a blowhard in the forest and no one is around to hear it, how many my pillows does it sell? And while most Americans say they do wear masks regularly, the biggest reason for those who don't is because of their so-called right as an American not to. Is it now? Man, you gotta wonder, have Americans always been this petty when it comes to putting aside our individual comfort for Laura Ingram's dreaded greater good? Yes and no. During World War II, the entire nation banded together to do things like collect metal from their homes to build weapons and obeyed food, gas, and alcohol rations to help the war effort. Can you imagine us doing that now? Or would we see hordes of Karens outside of Outback Steakhouse going, First, they came for the bloomin' onion appetizer, and I said nothing, because I'm more of a kookaburra wings girl. And then they came for the Outback Signature Steak, and I am on keto. Even Donald Duck played a part in the propaganda encouraging people to pay taxes for the war effort. And every dollar you sock away for taxes is another dollar to sock the axis. <laughs> or it is your taxes, my taxes, our taxes that run the factories. Taxes will keep democracy on the march. Wow, that is compelling. Almost as compelling as this clip of Daffy Duck hitting Hitler with a mallet. To our <laughs> oh, good old Daffy, the original Antifa. But unlike World War II, we can't bomb the coronavirus. If we could, we would have accidentally bombed a hospital within 100 miles of it by now. But the number of lives lost without a war closely resembles another distinctly American problem that we also can't get under control, gun deaths. The U.S. is once again a global outlier because of our resistance to gun control. More than 30,000 people are killed by firearms each year. The U.S. leads the world in mass shootings, and preschoolers do active shooter drills because a few Americans want the freedom to own guns designed for mass murder. Why is this music playing? And whenever we have the gun debate, the same argument of individual freedom is used to stop progress. One study found a correlation between attitudes about guns and attitudes about individualism. That makes sense, since for decades the NRA has been pushing the narrative that gun control advocates hate individual freedom. The study also found that the strongest predictor of individualistic attitudes is whiteness, wealth, and testicles, which coincidentally is the strongest predictor of being on Jeffrey Epstein's flight log. Dead giveaway. <laughs> But it makes sense that a belief in individualism correlates to race, class, and gender because individual rights are applied and enforced very unequally in this country. Black and brown Americans experience their individual rights policed or taken away on a daily basis, like Jacob Blake being shot in the back by police seven times, while a self-appointed teenage vigilante with an assault rifle is offered a bottle of water by police just before killing two protesters. Or the fact that federal officers have been called on unarmed BLM demonstrators while far paler protesters in Michigan show up like this to the state capitol. And officers there are like, I better call for backup and make sure nobody messes with their freedom. The fact that individual freedom has never been equally applied in this country is the first clue that it's a myth. 
But when did Americans' understanding of freedom imply individual freedom only? As author and professor Ibram X. Kendi writes, the history of the United States is the history of reconciling individual freedom and community freedom. Because life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness wasn't followed by the words, no matter who it hurts, fuck bitches get money. But slaveholders before the Civil War argued that that's exactly what the Constitution meant. They believed it protected their right to enslave because they considered slaves property and believed their property rights were more important than the individual rights of the enslaved. Which may explain why today some white people are more mad at a target burning down than the police murder of black Americans. Somehow. Struggles like the civil rights movement have historically fought to expand the idea of individual freedom in America to truly apply to all individuals, the entire country as a whole, not just a privileged few, and have met consistent pushback from the white. I mean, right. I mean, white. But American individualism has also been sold to us as the ability to start from nothing, work hard and make it big all by yourself. And you hear it championed using a very particular phrase. When you're going through a hard time, you pick yourself up by your bootstraps. The ability for people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Very patronizing, actually, to say that the people that are homeless now or the people that are poor now uh, couldn't have that same story, that if they got a job and they were able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, that they couldn't become the next Jeff Bezos or they couldn't become the next Steve Jobs. Yeah, just think of all the billionaires who started out homeless, okay? There's... Aladdin. That phrase, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, is commonly used to mean help yourself, do it alone. And that's what I thought it meant too, until I heard this. You know this idea and this metaphor of a bootstrap started off as a joke? The whole thing is a joke. She's right. When it was first used back in 1834, it was used as a joke. It was an expression that actually meant to try and do something completely absurd, something impossible. Think about it. You can't pull yourself up by your boots. What would that even... <gasps> Am I doing it? Telling someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is about as sincere as telling someone to climb the corporate ladder by planting a beanstalk. Just make sure you water it every day. <laughs> and yet the bootstraps myth persists. As recently as 2011, nearly 90% of Americans said that hard work and ambition, not the circumstances of a person's birth, are the key determinants of success. If only. In fact, there's more economic mobility in countries like Canada, Denmark, France, or other places I've looked into relocating if Trump gets reelected. Okay, so what about the idea of the American dream? The achievement of our individual freedom? That term has also been totally twisted and misinterpreted. The author James Truslow Adams first wrote about the American dream as a response to the obsession with money and material wealth of the Gilded Age. The dream wasn't to become like the ultra-rich robber barons. It was a dream for equality, democracy, and justice. University of London professor Sarah Churchwell says the American dream was further warped during the Cold War when consumerist capitalism became synonymous with Americanness as a response to the communist Soviet Union. Wow, that's what the American dream means? This is the worst game of historical telephone ever. What else have we misinterpreted? Next you're gonna tell me the Louisiana Purchase was actually just a giant bowl of gumbo. So why do we keep holding on to these ideas of individual freedom that cost lives, are never applied fairly, and have been wildly misunderstood? Because it's a brilliant myth to blame people for their own problems. 
their poverty, their debt, even their death. And you'd want to do that if extreme inequality is kind of working out for you. If you're, say, the world's largest company that employs the largest private workforce, which you subject to anti-union videos like this. Believe me, joining a union isn't something I ever want to do again. Here you can get ahead based on your own performance. I'm in control of my own career. Yeah, there is no one more in control of their own career like a retail worker. They don't answer to a union. They only answer to a shift manager, floor manager, store manager, market manager, support manager, assistant manager, co-manager, asset protection manager, and Karen, who would like to speak to all of those managers because you're asking her to wear a mask. The myth works if you're Andy Puzder, the former CEO of Carl's Jr., who is almost Trump's labor secretary, and is not just against unions, but workers getting sick leave, overtime pay, and raising the minimum wage to even $10 an hour. Over the past seven years, we've seen a disturbing move away from individual responsibility and reliance on free markets to a dependence on government. Whenever government gives you something, it takes something from you, your independence, your freedom. It's like I always say, when you're dying of thirst in the desert, being given water only takes away your drive to survive and your freedom to see the mirage of an oasis that will only disappear the closer you get. The myth works if you're a Republican politician trying to take away a government program as moderate as the Affordable Care Act. With President Trump's leadership, Obamacare is going to be replaced with something that actually works, something that's built on freedom and individual responsibility. Yeah, freedom and individual responsibility from the guy who isn't allowed to dine with another woman unless his wife is present. Okay. The myth of individual freedom helps the wealthy keep hoarding and it allows those in government to keep cutting the social safety net. Meanwhile, our warped idea of the American dream is the carrot at the end of the stick that makes us believe that, hey, maybe one day we too will find a magic lamp in a cave and it'll have a genie inside and maybe we'll get to see a whole new world or whatever, but probably, definitely not. Which brings us back to COVID. America's failure to stop the coronavirus proves that we need a new definition of freedom. I'm not talking about the freedom to get a haircut. I'm talking about the most fundamental freedoms that have been de denied for far too long. The freedom from infection, the freedom from death. Exactly, especially when millions of children are not free to go to school. Parents are not free to work. Not because Democratic governors won't allow it, but because we're being told that the individual freedom of an ignorant beefcake that wants to flex maskless in Costco is more important than our entire nation's freedom to not die. What about our collective freedom to go outside, to breathe clean air, drink clean water, to live in a community free of gun violence, to own a home and be able to stay in it? Our very survival depends on reclaiming American freedom from the powerful. They've been bastardizing it for far too long. And that was the perfect use of that music. Finally! Thanks so much for watching News Broke. Um, or my TED Talk, or PhD thesis, or whatever that was. It was long, you're here, and that's all that matters. Let me know in the comments what you think about this idea of individual freedom versus community freedom. Can we ever reconcile the two? Let me know and we will see you next week. Francesca Fiorentini, I didn't get her name before. Francesca Fiorentini with her take on individual freedom.
where a person posits that his, his right not to wear a mask is more important than your right not to die of the COVID. She says it's killing her. I would agree with that. Okay, let's listen to some more music here. Merry Christmas, baby. Merry Christmas, baby. You should just treat me nice. Merry Christmas, baby. Should it treat me nice? Gave me a diamond ring for Christmas. Now I'm living in paradise. Well, I'm feeling mighty fine. Good music on my radio. Well, I'm feeling mighty fine. Got good music on my radio. Well, I wanna kiss you, baby, while you're standing beneath the mistletoe. the chimney about a half past three left all these pretty presents that you see before me Merry Christmas pretty baby you sure been good to me well I haven't had a drink this morning but I'm all lit up like a Christmas tree Ooh.
doing very well, playing some uh, Christmas songs. Um, I want to thank you for calling. I understand you, you wrote a paper about one of our labor heroes, um, Emma Tenayuka. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Oh, okay. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so tell me, Emma Tenayuka was from whereabouts? San Antonio, Texas. And she organized workers in what industry? Pecan workers. Exactly. Okay, and this raised the ire of the local Ku Klux Klan. Marie Maverick, the, who was the governor of Texas at the time, right? M or mayor. Mayor of San Antonio. Yeah, well, they, she wanted to have a rally, I think, and uh, Maverick the mayor said it was okay, but then the Klan decided to shut it down. Okay. So um, she organized pecan workers. Did they indeed have a strike? What, what happened with that? Okay, well, um, that's great. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you're uh, interested in Emma Tenayuka, uh, people like this. 
people like this tend to be forgotten, you know, because they're not, uh, <clears throat> they're working class heroes. They're not big cultural heroes of the, uh, of the elite class. Yeah, yeah, people do forget. Okay, well, anything else you want to add? Um, how's everything up, up in Davis? Yeah. Yeah, pretty bad. Okay, well, and thank you very much. Our uh, cultural correspondent with uh, words about a great labor leader, Emma Tenayuka. Thank you very much, Vika. Talk to you soon. So that was uh, Vita Castaniela Morgan, the uh, cultural correspondent from UC Davis, talking about the life and times of Emma Tenayuka. Um, Emma Tenayuka on our labor card is number eight. And uh, she grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, family was broke. During high school, she would go out to a certain area in San Antonio where people were giving speeches. Agitators were trying to raise the issues of the day for working people. And uh, she got involved and became a leader of the movement. Uh, led a successful pecan workers strike, 57 days I believe. Of course, the pecan companies later on, you know, just moved out of town or decided to do something else so they wouldn't have to pay a living wage. And Emma Tenayuka was run out of San Antonio by the Ku Klux Klan. You shall know them by their enemies, huh? Okay, here's Joan Jett, a little drummer.
That was Joan Jett. We had quite a set there. We were um, we had to stop to talk about Emma Tenayuka. We had George Thorogood with a rock and roll Christmas. We had Joan Jett there playing um, a little drummer boy. And for uh, no reason at all, I threw in Eric Clapton's version of Irene Goodnight. Great, great, great old American song. Um, Joan Jett punk rock version of uh, The Little Drummer Boy. <clears throat> All right, let's do some labor history. December 19th, Solidarity Gets the Goods. This was the day, well, let's hear them tell it. They will tell it. I'm Rick Smith, and this is go. Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was the day that workers ended their 99-day strike against the Ford Motor Company in Windsor, Ontario. Just across the river from Detroit, workers from the UAW Local 200 fought and won a union shop and dues checkoff. They had to fight hard to get it. The plant was organized during World War II. Workers put off many demands to help with the war effort. After the war, Ford refused to agree to a new contract and laid off 1,500 workers. The workers voiced their rage and issued new demands. They wanted vacation and layoff pay, better grievance procedures and medical benefits. They also wanted compensation for work on Sundays and holidays. When Ford refused to budge, 14,000 workers took to the picket line and went on strike. By October, they also shut down the powerhouse that brought light, heat, and power to the plant. Management complained machinery would be damaged if the power remained off. The Ontario Provincial Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were called in to reopen the plant. When they arrived, they found a barricade of some 2,000 cars and trucks reinforcing the picket lines. Then, 8,000 workers from Amalgamated Local 195, which included Chrysler workers, walked out in sympathy. They joined the picket lines and stayed out for a month. The Women's Auxiliary organized to feed the strikers. They had financial support from unions, churches, and small businesses from across the country. Returning soldiers marched in solidarity rallies along with much of the community. Because of this strong showing of support, negotiations were jump-started and soon workers were ratifying a new contract. This victory allowed what is now Unifor 584 to win unprecedented gains for its members for more than three decades. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. 
That was the day that Congress passed the 18th Amendment, which outlawed the transportation, manufacture, and sale of alcohol. The amendment went into effect 13 months later. According to John Rumbarger, author of Profits, Power, and Prohibition, the temperance movement centered on tightening social control of working people. Workers often met in bars and saloons to unwind after work and to socialize. But in the days before union halls, the saloon also doubled as a headquarters where workers could talk about problems on the job, like mistreatment and poor working conditions. They used the saloon as a place to plan and organize strikes. It also served as a site for workers to talk politics and organize around political parties. Many prominent industrialists complained that saloons were breeding grounds for labor unrest and radical politics. They also feared a growing immigrant working class that tied its fate to powerful political machines like those in Chicago, New York, and Boston. The anti-saloon movement brought a strange mix into its coalition. It included the KKK, who worried of the growing power of immigrant workers. But it also included progressives, who worked for labor harmony and sobriety as a means of public health. The anti-saloon movement also targeted German brewers. The United States had just entered World War I, and anti-German sentiment was so high that many considered German breweries to be working for the Kaiser, their product a sap on the energy of servicemen and grain production to feed the U.S. troops. But alcohol flowed freely throughout the 1920s, creating both the jazz speakeasy and bootlegging syndicates. It would ultimately be repealed by 1933. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History. Not time for us to be leaving. Remember, this is Labor and Love Radio. Are you hear it how it is? One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table, that is, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's just a waste of time. Signing off. This was our Christmas show. Many other holidays at this time of year. And we'll celebrate those next week on Labor and Love Radio. Take a listen to Carrie Miraji with the Internacional. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye and good work. swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship 
as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Tebow of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. <laughs> hey, you, poetry reader. This is Bjork's sister, Mjork. It's okay. We also have a soul and a weekly poetry reading on Mutiny Radio's AltaCast, zoomed every Wednesday at high noon from Glasgow, Scotland. One of our co-hosts from Choose Poetry, Choose Life, Andy Talbot, has a new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, which is available at analogsubmission.com now. Go buy it, and don't let the poets lie to you. Once again, that's Andy Talbot's new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, available at analogsubmission.com. 
Dot-com. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Francisco, what are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin at Resolute Wine Bar, 678 Geary, for Barrel of Laughs at Resolute, an amazing comedy show with the best wines curated by Resolute. On Wednesdays, join us at Asiento. At and 21st and Bryant for dinner and a show at Asiento. Delicious tapas, incredible drinks, hilarious comedy. Wednesday nights at 7.30. On Fridays at 7 o'clock, join us outside mutinyradio.fm here at 21st and Florida. 7 o'clock for outdoor comedy, socially distanced in the street. And Saturdays, join us at Atlas Cafe SF. 20th in Alabama for Titans of Comedy every Saturday at 2 o'clock. Hey, keep supporting local businesses and comedy here in San Francisco with your friends at Mutiny Radio. The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country, as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines, vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, 
jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed. You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff? Talk to Under. Go to SkinOnSkins.com. That's S-K-I-N-O-N-S-K-I-N-S.com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com. At 20th and Mission, check him out at SkinOnSkins.com. LSD, FAP, acid and fapping, fapping and acid, acid fapping, fapping and acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. What is flat black plastic? What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat black plastic. Vinyl. Records. Round. Played. Mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scotto Amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic. This is Tuchel Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. Ah! My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United... 